Welcome to Volsteadland. I'm Amy, and this is Heather. Hi, Amy. We're so glad you're here. Join us as we take a trip back in time to the 1920s and 30s in Minneapolis and discover the city's underworld. If you've not yet listened to the previous episode, The Muckrakers, or any of those before it, you'll probably want to check them out as there's some stuff in there that you'll need to know to get the most out of this one. Insert explicit warning, blah, blah. The story is about murder. It could get nasty. We're all grownups and we swear a little. So that's that. Um, so sit back, <laughs> grab a drink of choice. Join us in 1935 when Kid Can goes on trial for the murder of Walter Liggett. Heather, do you want to tell the folks what we're drinking tonight? We are drinking the Scofflaw. It is a Prohibition-era cocktail that combines rye whiskey and dry vermouth with lemon juice, grenadine, and a dash or two of orange bitters. Um, this classic cocktail got its name from a term for those who continued to imbibe during Prohibition in the U.S. in the 1920s, those who scoffed at the law. So, cheers! Cheers! Um, the cocktail was invented in 1924 at Harry's New York Bar in Paris, France. Harry's New York Bar is an iconic bar that was a favorite haunt for influential figures like Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald. Other famous cocktails to emerge from Harry's include the French 75, the Sidecar, and possibly the Bloody Mary. So cheers. cheers. Again. I think we had the Sidecar um, a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? We did. We did. All right, let's get to it. There's some good stuff here. All right. So remember a few weeks ago after, well, actually, a month or two ago now, um, after episode three about the Payne Avenue Bank, yes. I did an addendum where I kind of cleared up some things that we were not clear about when we were discussing. And then I over explained some other things. <laughs> um, I didn't have time to do that this time. So I'm just going to wrap a couple of that stuff into this one. Uh, so one, I did amend some of the stuff in the video. So anybody who saw the video saw, um, you know, I, I made some adjustments and corrections and stuff in the video. Um, but for those who don't watch that, uh, for those who aren't a patron, here are the, here are the updates, the changes, the, uh, corrections corner sort of thing. So when I was editing, I noted that I had talked about how I didn't know where the St. Barnabas Hospital was. So I did a little research. This is the hospital that Howard Guilford was in when he was shot the first time. It is a small facility with only six beds, and it was between 6th and 7th Street South and 9th and 10th Avenues downtown. It was built in 1871, and at that time was called the co the Cottage Hospital. It eventually rolled into the Hennepin County Medical Center group of hospitals. 
There's a building at that location now. It's called the St. Barnabas Apartments, but it's not the same building necessarily. It is a preservation of an addition to the original building. Oh. So there's probably not even the same brick at all, not even one brick, but it looks totally different. And it is now housing for formerly homeless and at-risk youth. Excellent. Yeah. And then I also mentioned that I didn't know where the Swedish hospital was, and that was where Walter Liggett recovered from his beating. It's at It was at 914 South 8th Street in Minneapolis. It's near all the other hospitals, and eventually it rolled into the HCMC universe as well. Wikipedia says it was the third and last location of the Swedish hospital built in 1929 and closed in 1970. So I just made it (laughs) because I was born there Um, when it merged with St. Barnabas Hospital to become the Metropolitan Medical Center. The building is currently used as a clinic for Hennepin faculty associates and connects to the larger Hennepin County Medical Center campus. Okay, next is um, remember Sir John Law, how he was going to stuff the prisons and the guy's legs were going to be hanging out. Yep. Okay, so I found a goofy video that looks like it was made by someone who doesn't want to be tracked. Like, it looked like some of those Q videos that I've seen (laughs) on those uh, documentaries. But it's an animated soldier that looks like one of those little Fisher-Price dolls. And he's just like, you know, talking and then there's a voiceover. He's just moving and there's a voiceover. It's really weird. Um, But it explains that Sir John Law is not a person. It's a long arm of the law that has to hide from the president. Oh, yeah, which makes me think Q again. But anyway, so I, as I was editing the video episode, um, I, my friend Megan texted me with a screenshot of what she found when she Googled John Law. And I put the screenshot in the video, but basically it says, it's a police officer who does not abuse their power and honorably holds, upholds the motto to serve and protect an officer who remembers what it was like to be a kid and carries insight for all people. Which sounds really nice. Wouldn't that be great if we had that's, that's a lot a of That's a beautiful those? idea. Yeah. Um, there's a song called Sir John Law by the Dropkick Murphys about this. Oh. Um, I probably should pull it out and listen to it. Um, do you watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine? I have, um, but I'm not a regular fan. Okay. I don't hate it. I okay. Just... Well, they they've... Basically, they were they were done. And then I thought they were done, done. But they took a year off because of, you know, COVID. But they came back and they dropped two episodes. And the first one is like, I was almost crying. It was because they're, you know, they're cops. And one of them quits because they're like, after this whole George Floyd thing, I can't be a cop anymore. And it was like, really heartbreaking. But I mean, for a comedy show, it still had its funnies, you know, and everything. But I was like, yeah, I, I can. I imagine this is really awful for good cops. And mm-hmm. there are some. There's, there's just Supposedly. a lot of bad ones, too. <laughs> um, anyway, it's a good show. I recommend watching it. And then see, the second episode was way back to goofiness. But it did. The first one was really like, oh. Okay. So then I also looked up the Zyda sisters. Remember, I thought that Howard might be stripping them. Um, I wanted, I didn't want to assume that if they were either children or elderly. So I looked up this census for them, but my free trial of ancestry.com expired. And, um, so I didn't have much luck there, 
But using newspapers.com, I did find an Esther Amelia born in 1903 and an Estella Helen, who could be Stella, born in 1912. So if these are them, in 1927, when he was with Esther, when he got shot the first time, she would have been 24 years old. And in 1934, when he was with Stella, when he died, uh, she would have been 22. So you Those be the are judge. appropriate ages for stooping. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, they're adults, right? <laughs> I mean, he was only 40. Um, also, that's another thing. Uh, I mentioned that the only photo we have of him is from 1918, and I was guessing how old he was in the photo. I had read that the photo was when he was running for governor and that he was 18, but I knew that didn't sound right because the articles all said he was 48 when he died in 1934. But he really wasn't. He was 40. Oh. And I can't find his date of birth, but the murder was in September. So let's just say the chances are good that he'd already had a birthday that year. So that would have made him born in 1894. So in 1918, when he ran for governor, and then we have that, showed that picture of him, uh, he was about 24. Also, I did find another photo of him. Um, It's a hideous photo of him dead in his car right after he was murdered. And I won't be sharing that one. Uh, you can Google it if you want to, but I recommend you don't. It's <laughs> it's it's really awful. I mean, I've seen worse, you know, crime scene photos, but it's just it's yeah, it's not it's not nice. Um, also, I had said that the police chief's name is Burnskill. It's Brunskill. I know that, and I don't know why the word came out wrong, <laughs> and I don't notice what I don't know why I didn't notice it when I said it, but. Um, I'll say it's amazing what you find when you edit your own voice. And you're like, where did that come from? I know how to say that. Why did I say that so weird? You know, and so, yeah, it's amazing. Um, I had said that the Tijuana Cafe was near the Walker Art Center. It's not quite. It's a little further down. Um, it's on It's on 11th and Hennepin. So it's, it's where the CVS used to be, that big CVS. Yep. Those of you who aren't from Minneapolis will be like, what the fuck are you talking about? But um, I'm always afraid that someone's listening and going, God, that idiot. She doesn't even know where 10th and Hennepin is. Um, I repeatedly misspoke Marta Liggett Woodbury's name when I was talking about her book. Her name is Woodbury, not Woodhouse. My apologies to her. (laughs) Not that she'll ever hear this, but uh, Marta Liggett Woodbury, if you're hearing this, I apologize. And your book is amazing, and I used it a lot in my research. Okay, this one was a doozy. Um, We left off after I told you about the murder of Walter Liggett and how at least three witnesses said they saw Kid Can, Izzy, as the gunman. I'll probably refer to him mostly as Can in this one because that's how all the papers and the books... Uh, refer to him, and I'll be quoting them, and I don't want to confuse anybody. So um, being a person who likes order, I wanted to tell this in a linear fashion. But the thing is, most of the details came out at the trial. And so it makes more sense to kind of cover it that way. Like most of what I'm going to tell you about is at the trial. But there are a lot of inaccuracies and discrepancies. So in the weeks leading up to the murder, there were plenty of sightings of cars with people in them just staking out the Liggett apartment. There's a story of a woman named Sally. She went out on a date with a guy named Ray, 
who later gave her $3 for information when he showed when she showed him the apartment that was Walter's. Oh. She he just asked, "Where's Walter's apartment?" She pointed at it and he said, "Thank you," and gave her $3. <laughs> um also his wife Edith says that Meyer Schuldberg, who is Kitkan's boss, called Walter the day of the murder and told him that he'd sue him for libel if he didn't stop writing about him. When Walter said, go for it, I can prove what I know, Schulberg said, we'll stop you another way then. Oh. <laughs> that was a day of the murder. Um, Edith also said one of Ed Morgan's men called up and threatened Walter too, but she wouldn't spill the tea on his identity because he had provided the Liggetts with valuable information. Marta mentions in her book that Ed Morgan is a strong suspect for the Guilford murder. So putting him on the list of people to deep dive into later. There was also kidnapping threats against the children. Edith said these gangsters used to glare into Walter's office window. One of them she named was Philip Flippy Cher. He is the alleged getaway driver from the Guilford murder. Oh, okay. The one that Guilford pointed out like four years after the fact. <laughs> and everyone was like, dude, that's old. We're not going back to that. Um, or not the murder, I should say, the shooting, the because it was him that obviously he was alive to point him out. Um, Walter was preparing to release a story about Governor Floyd Olson and was prepping to give a speech on why he should be impeached. Uh, Olson does respond to this later, after the murder, after the trial. Uh, Olson's FBI file says that in the spring of 1935, so just before the murder, the murder was in December, he hired an attorney of questionable character to have Walter followed and report back to him. This was done, and reports were sent to Olson, his speechwriter, and then the lawyer kept one. Edith would find out later from Walter's friends that he told them, by January, either Governor Olson will be impeached or I'll be full of holes. His story will be full of holes. Or, no, oh, he'll get, he'll get he, bullet holes. Okay. He okay. will be full of holes. <laughs> Literally and, uh, full of holes. He was, he was right. Okay. Day of the murder. This is December 9th, 1935. There are three people who gave their accounts here, and they're all slightly different, but not in a substantial way, I don't think. And it's Walter's wife, Edith their daughter, Marta, and their friend, A.B. Gilbert. Uh, one thing I want to note is that while the Liggetts did put out the Midwest American, they also owned a print shop where they would do print jobs for other businesses like flyers and menus and advertisements and stuff like that. So that's when I say the office or the print shop, it's that. So... um at uh, 5 p.m. on December 9th, Edith says that she, Walter, and their friend, A.B. Gilbert, left the newspaper office slash print shop and went to pick up Marta at the library. Now, Marta says that her dad picked her up and then they went to go pick up Edith and A.B. at the print shop. She remembers them closing up desks and turning off lights. And so she had to have been present, I think. And this was the first time and probably only time she met A.B. So I'm thinking that has to be, even though she was only 10 years old, but I feel like that has to be 
right in her mind because she there was, wasn't another instance right. where they were all together, you know? AB's statement says that he and Walter left the office and went to pick up Edith and Marta at a grocery store. And I don't know why he would lie unless he just doesn't remember or unless he didn't want to appear appear improper because he and Edith were at the print shop together without Walter. I, I don't know. I can't. I don't know why he would have a different story, but he seems he's a very minor character. He doesn't really come back in this except for his name is mentioned again, but I don't know why he would lie. So I'm going to, I'm going to assume he just misremembered. But anyway, Walter offered to give Gilbert a ride to his bus stop. Um, Gilbert lived in uh, Mound. So first they stopped at the store to pick up a box of pre-ordered groceries. And that was on late Lindell and Lake. AB Gilbert put the box of groceries in the back seat with Edith and Marta. They dropped Gilbert off at the bus stop, bus depot, which they said was Hennepin and 6th or 7th Street. But I kind of think it must be 1st Avenue because that was a bus depot back then. Right. So I think it was 1st Avenue, that building anyway. When they arrived home, it was 540. Uh, Their apartment was at 1825 2nd Avenue South, which is right across from Stevens Square Park. The sun set at 4.42 that day. Yes, I looked it up. So it would have been dark, but almost all accounts say that the alley was very well lit. And this is kind of an important thing. Um, Also, the lights in their apartment were on and the shades were up and that cast light into the alley as well, along with other units nearby that, you know, that it was two buildings that um, shared an alley. So there were a lot of Mm -hmm. windows looking down at that alley. So he goes in down the alley from 19th Street, and that's where all the residents' cars are parked. It's very tight back there. There's only room for like a row of cars parked and then a, a car to get through. Walter's son Wallace is 12. He's upstairs in the apartment. As Walter gets out of the car, another car starts coming down the alley. Walter leans in close to his car to make room for the other car to pass behind him while telling Edith and Marta to stay in the car. And that's when, as the car gets parallel with them, the gun comes out and shoots him. Shots are fired. And uh, Edith said in her statement to the police, as the man shot, he had a snarling smile on his face that I will never forget. So she looked him right, right in the eye. At 5.43, a call was made to the police. They arrived within five minutes. His body remained in the alley until about 6.48 when the coroner had completed his examination. He was shot five times, a half circle around his heart. Oh, wow. And one of the bullets, I believe, um, they pulled four of the bullets they found four of the bullets, but one of them was still in him, and it had gone, like, through his back and stuck. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Marta does say that a lot of people were around at the time, and there were at least three witnesses to the actual shooting. After the shooting, his daughter ran into the building manager's apartment. Her name is Alice Delaney. Uh, and then she went to her own apartment, where her brother was, to let him know what happened. Um, since the kids had also been threatened... They had hired sort of a babysitter to stay with them while the parents were gone. So she was there with Wally, and her name's Amanda. 
Marta, daughter, remembers that, that remembers the police being a bumbling crew who stumbled over each other and didn't know what to do. Some, it turns out, were friends of Kid Can. They didn't want Edith to call her mother. Once Bob Leggett, Walter's brother, showed up, the cops were much nicer to her. Marta also writes that the reporters were the worst. They didn't seem to care about the family's loss. They just wandered around the apartment, cracking jokes, smoking cigars, and took framed photos off the walls and shelves. And then they showed up in the newspaper the next day. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That doesn't sound right. No. (laughs) She did say later that what she remembers as them being the journalists or the reporters, she said it's possible that they were plainclothes cops, too. Because there were a lot of cops there. But I don't know why the cops would steal a picture. The reporters, I can see. But anyway, there were a bunch of people milling about, acting like jerks. The supervisor of detectives, John Hilburn, showed up. And he was a much nicer guy, apparently. And he took Edith to the caretaker's apartment to take her statement there. Edith's statement, uh, she is. she had noted previously or as I noted previously, um, she said that she, Walter, and A.D. Gilbert left the newspaper office, picked up Marta at the library, went to the grocery store, dropped off A.B. at the bus station, and then went home. She also remembers a car being parked about 20 feet from theirs, that once they got there and parked, that that car started up and drove past them, and she believes that's the car holding the shooters. But Marta remembers it differently. She remembers a car coming around the corner and then firing from the gun from there. Um, Edith gives the exact route they took home. Like she said, we turned on this street, we turned on this street. She knows exactly how they got home. And it's probably how they got home often from downtown. But uh, she tells how he got out of the car. The car came up and started shooting. She remembers the man in the front seat uh, and one in the back, but she says she's not quite sure. At the time, Marta also says she sees one guy in the front and one guy in the back. But I don't know how you can tell. The car's moving fast. There's a point where right, they're, right. they're they equal. Went in with yeah. The front. yeah. Anyway, she says it's a dark colored car. She says the man in the back seat was Kid Can and that she'd seen him a few times before. So she did know what he looked like. She recognized him, um, but she had never spoken to him. She does say how Walter knows him and talks a little bit about the beating a couple of months back. The beating was in October. This is in December. Um, she also said that the alley was well lit and that she could plainly see him because the headlights on both cars were on, as well as all those apartment lights um, casting light into the alley. So three hours after the murder, both Kid Can and his boss at Chesapeake Brands, Meyer Schulberg, uh, were brought to the police station and they were giving statements. Uh, their attorney was with them, Charles Bank. I don't know what happened to Carrie. Maybe he couldn't handle a murder trial. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe he's, I don't know, maybe he's passed on since then. But um, this quote from the paper says, Blumenfeld was a picture of composure when he was brought into the headquarters. He was chewing vigorously on a wad of gum. He greeted several police he knew with a smile and a wave of his hand. He hurried into the office of Markson, that's the cop who was questioning them, and sensing that he might be there for some time, immediately removed his overcoat and made himself comfortable. And one thing I thought was sort of odd, and when they talk about Schulberg, Meyer Schulberg giving his statement, Kit Can was in the room with him and the lawyer when they gave the statement. 
which I think is sort of seems odd. like they should be separated for that kind of thing. They sh- yeah, nowadays yeah. they would have separated them for sure. Uh, he says he only met Liggett once before, and that was when Walter called him up, saying that their mutual friend, Senator Thomas Shaw, told him to call Meyer and arrange to meet. Uh, Meyer went to a house on Portland Avenue where Shaw used to live. Walter said he was living there now and renting from Shaw. Walter came out of the house and got in the car and talked to Meyer about how he's writing about him in the paper. He said he's going to take down Olson. Meyer said he only met Molson once. Walter asked for money to defend his trial. He said if he got $1,500, he'd lay off. This was the trial that he was, um, that statutory rape trial yep. that we talked about last time. Um, that was a frame up from, I don't know, Olson or whoever else was in that group. Um, so he was asking for money for uh, defense to pay as an attorney. Meyer said he'd talk to his partners and let him know. He said he'd come back around the house in a half an hour. He drove around and then came back and told Walter to, quote, jump in a lake. <laughs> uh, so that would be a no. Um, the problem with this story is that when Schulberg said this happened, Walter didn't live in that house anymore. They'd already moved to this apartment that, um, that he lived in when, they, when he died. So either it didn't happen or Schulberg got the dates wrong. Either way, the newspapers changed the dates so that it would match Schulberg's story. Oh. Schulberg admits that he spoke to Walter at about 3.30 p.m. on the day of the murder. Walter called him and told him that he was writing some articles about him. Meyer says he was at his office until about 5.30 when he drove home. He arrived home at 5.45. His wife and servant girl were home. <laughs> and he stayed, he stayed there until he was brought in for questioning. Uh, now, Can's statement, uh, Schulberg had left the room by the time Can was talking. I don't think Schulberg was in the room at this time, but I'm not sure about that. Detective Markston had placed a copy of Walter's paper on the table so Can could see it. It was the issue where he had laid into Can, and Can looked at it, reading and chewing his gum. And then his lawyer left the room. Can stayed in there for several minutes and then came out of the room was marched to the jail elevator and taken to the fifth floor of City Hall, where the jail is, and he was booked. He refused to pose for photographs, and he held his hat over his face. Not so cocky now, huh? Nope. Uh Uh-huh. So here's some highlights from his statement. At the time of the arrest, he said he lived at 1525 Plymouth North, but we find out later that's his mother's house, not his. He says he is married for eight years to Lillian Lee. But I can only find a marriage date of August 25th, 1936. This is December of 1935, uh, which would be nine months in the future. Uh, I've been rolling around with this problem in my head since day one uh, because I had read this and I also read the the marriage date and it didn't make sense to me. Everything online says they were married August 25th. Um, But his statement and his testimony later at trial he both says he, they've been married for eight years. I don't know why I assumed he was telling the truth. I He was, you know, especially when he's on trial, he was sworn in. I assumed that he was telling the truth. But Marta Liggett Woodbury in her book says that he lied. They were not married. He referred to her as his wife, but they were not married. Ever? Uh, they not were married, married in ever? 1936. Oh, yeah. okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
I have a source whose family was friends with the Blumenfelds, although they didn't know him until the 60s, but they didn't know when they were married. So in his statement, uh, Can offered what they called an ironclad alibi, declaiming, declaiming. Motion detected at the front door. Oh, I think our food's here. I think our food's here. Ding dong. <laughs> okay. Someone's at the front door. All right, let's take a break. Hi, friends. Welcome to Season 5 of The Activity Continues, a paranormal podcast. I'm Amy, the producer and host of the show, along with Megan and the other Amy. We are three soul friends who love to talk about the Dead Files TV show, along with other spooky and spooky adjacent things. We are just starting our third year, and it's going to be the best one yet. Hi, everyone. I'm Megan, our resident scaredy cat. (laughs) I love this stuff, but it absolutely terrifies me. (laughs) It doesn't terrify me. Me neither. Most of the time. Hey, everyone. I'm the other Amy, sometimes referred to as Amy, ABP, or AP. And I'm the voice of reason in the chaos, trying to keep these two spooky, goofy, lovely ladies in line. (laughs) We're creating a community of like-minded friends who love to discuss all things paranormal. Along with our thoughts and tangents, you will also hear listener stories and interviews with paranormal professionals, Dead Files clients, and people with personal paranormal experiences. So far, we've spoken to a witch, an intuitive, a shaman, a UFO abductee, and a handful of Dead Files clients. We're always looking for more cool and interesting people to talk to. So if you're interested, please reach out to theactivitycontinues at gmail.com or fill out the guest intake form on our website, theactivitycontinues.com. We'd love to hear from you. Come join us where the activity activity continues. continues. (laughs) okay um back from break Refreshed beverages. And um, at the time of the murder, Kid Can was working for Meyer Schulberg, who owned a company called Chesapeake Brands. It was a liquor distribution company. It was incorporated in January 1935, renamed from La Pompadour, which Pompadour. you may remember from before. This yes. is the one that he had. Kid Can had um, that he used to purchase alcohol ostensibly for making perfume or cosmetics and then made hooch out of it. Barbershop. Barbershop too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, I think it was a barbershop. I don't really know. I did not look into the records before of La Pompadour. It's possible Meyer Schulberg owned it the whole time. But it was um, it was renamed with uh, listing Meyer Schulberg as the president and B.W. Beidelman as the secretary. I believe that Kid Can was not allowed to own a liquor-related company after his bootlegging conviction. Uh, Schulberg, I know, was not allowed to own liquor retail 
but this was a distribution company. So I think that's how he got around it. This is Kid Can's statement. Uh, he, he was asked to tell the story of the night that Walter got beat up. He says, Walter got to asking me if I was a good friend of Floyd Olson. I said, no, I know him, but I've never had the pleasure of talking to him. Bullshit. <laughs> Shabbos Goy, anyone? Um, he also said that Walter insisted that can take him home. And it was Walter that suggested a drink at the Tijuana. He basically shrugs and says, I understand he got slugged outside. <laughs> it's so full of shit. He gives a lengthy, boring account of his day, where he went, who he saw. I won't bore you with it. It's probably bullshit anyway. But the important part is that Kid Can said that he met a guy named Lou Gallinson at the Liquor Mart, one of his many stops throughout the day, after 5.30 that night. He says he walked to the artistic barbershop on Hennepin Avenue with Lou. Lou did say that he met Can at about 5.15 and spoke to him for a few minutes, but denies walking anywhere with him. Kid Can claims he was in the barbershop from 5.40 to 6.25 p.m. This is in his statement. Now, he's going to change this a few times. One thing I found that I thought was interesting in recent years, probably a bit before COVID, the barbershop building was a nightclub called The Alibi. <laughs> yeah. um, and this also, also I thought was interesting. Liggett had his palm read years before he was murdered. And he was told that he would die with his boots on. And I looked that up and to die with your boots on is an idiom referring to dying while you are fighting or to die while actively occupied, employed, or working in the middle of some action. Uh, the palm reading was done by the wife of Senator Thomas Shaw. He was an acquaintance that Liggett rented that Portland home from on Portland Avenue, not in Portland. They did not see eye to eye politically. After Walter was murdered, Senator Thomas Shaw asked for a congressional investigation into the murder, and Edith responded with, quote, Shaw is trying to make capital out of my husband's murder. If he wanted to help Walter, why did he wait until now? <laughs> I like her. She's spicy. <laughs> okay, so let's move on to the investigation. And let's just say that this was bungled. Um, so at first, Governor Floyd appealed to the United States Attorney General to send federal agents, G-men, yeah. to investigate. Um, but the FBI declined, saying it's a state matter and they didn't want to get involved. The local police did not question people that they should have, such as Dave Garfunkel, the owner of the barbershop that was Kid Can's alibi, never talked to him. They did talk to all of his employees who all said that Kid Can arrived around 520. Now, remember, Kid Can himself says he arrived at 540. They didn't question the babysitter, Amanda. They didn't question the apartment manager, Alice Delaney, until the trial. And that would be the lawyers that questioned her. Um, but the lawyers, for some reason, asked the cops about her a lot when they questioned them during the trial. They seemed very interested in, did anybody see her? Did, who was, she, you know, was she in the room when this was said? And I don't know why, but 
there's going to be a little more on that later, but I still don't know why. Um, three days after the murder, they came around questioning some neighbors, but never followed up on any leads. Some were really good too. All those questioned said the alley was well lit. Uh, they changed their minds about the weapon. At first, they said it was a Wesson 45. Then they changed it to a Thompson machine gun. The FBI did do ballistics tests, and they showed that the bullets which killed Walter came from a submachine gun, the kind used by gangsters. A Tommy gun. I guess. Yeah, I guess that's what I, they called him, right? I've heard the term Tommy gun. If it's a Thompson machine too. gun, I bet that's Tommy is short oh, for that. Oh, you're right, Tom Thompson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. But in some weird logic, this meant to the police that it was hired killers from the outside. The paper reported that only seven people in Minneapolis are familiar with this kind of weapon, but they never looked into those seven people or named them. Seven is a very specific number. I wonder how I they know, know so that. They obviously know who, yeah, they obviously know who they are. Uh, maybe they did talk to them, but it never made it to the papers. It never was in any kind of record. It, they didn't certainly weren't at the trial. Also, reporters found out. Okay, so because the police were doing such a bang up job, civilians and reporters started doing investigation on their own and trying to get to the bottom of it. So, some reporters found out that several calls were made from the Chesapeake brands. That's Schulberg and Cannes Company um, from the Chesapeake brands to Chicago, leading up to the murder. Tons of phone calls, but those were never investigated. Ray Appeal, he's the one that gave $3 to Sally for pointing out Walter's apartment. He was seen many times by neighbors on the street or in the alley, sitting or standing near a green car, and he was never questioned. They brought Edith down to the station and asked her to ID Can. They call this a show up. I guess we call it a lineup now, but they called it a show up. Um, when she went in and looked at all the men standing there, she knew him right away, but she took her time and then she pointed at him. Now, this isn't like today where the victim or witness is behind glass and the right, you can't see them. Criminals can't see. Um, they were standing right there. So she points at him when she pointed at him, he shouted out, oh yes, you saw my picture in the papers, which had to be terrifying for her. Yeah. That's, I mean, <laughs> Um, his lawyers would later point out that when they conducted the show up, he was the only one well-dressed. Every other man wore overalls. The captain said that he told the jailer to round up some fairly well-dressed men, but the jailer said he didn't have much to work with. <laughs> <laughs> the jail was not full and certainly not full of well-dressed men. I don't know why they couldn't just, you know, take Izzy and make him change his clothes and put some dirt on his face. But <laughs> apparently they didn't think of that or, or he, he refused. Maybe he refused and they said, Oh, okay. <laughs> um, the police then showed her 50 photos of other men in order for her to pick out the driver, but she was unable to find him. She even said she wasn't, she didn't even see him. She was locked in on the yeah. shooter. But she did recognize Philip Flippy, uh, who she said was she saw driving around the uh, area of the print shop and glaring at her and Walter through the window from across the street. Now, remember, he's the alleged 
driver in the Guilford shooting. Okay. So then this is a section on the cars that were all found, impounded, looked at. It's really quite boring and it leads to nothing. So I'm going to pretty much gloss over it. But they did find an abandoned car near the scene. They went over the vehicle for fingerprints and early reports say they found some. And they also found two shotgun shells in the back seat, but then it was dropped. They found the owner and he reported that the car was stolen an hour before, hour or so before the murder. Do we know if the shells in the car matched the shells that were shot? I'm going to guess they didn't even check. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, there's nothing in there, nothing I could find about that particular part of it. They then turned their sights on a different car, the one belonging to Meyer Schulberg. This is the car that can drove around all day to run errands. But he returned it to the Chesapeake Brands building. Uh, the car smelled of gunpowder and had a mark on the silk, some part inside the car. But the car was cleared by a St. Paul scientific crime expert. It doesn't seem to me that it could have been that car unless the times are all off and he really was still driving around on his own or unless when, oh no, I was going to say when the other kid was driving him around, but that was a different car. Anyway, I don't know why the first guy had shotgun shells in his car. Like that would be something you'd look at. I would right? think so. Call in ballistics. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that they did. I mean, they checked the bullets that were in Walter, but they, I don't think they checked the bullets, the, the, shell, the shells from, from that car. Anyway, at this time, there was a grand jury investigation, a special investigation going on. They wanted to hire a special core of secret and unidentified investigators. Part of the reasoning given by the grand jury was that the slaying of Howard Guilford was never solved. They said they would, quote, tear the lid off conditions which permitted Walter to be killed. According to the New York Times, the Law and Order League says that one of the six city police detectives who were assigned to the murder case and were told to check every detail of the alibi for Kid Can is one of Can's friends. His name? You'll know this guy. Joseph Lehmeyer. Oh, Remember when Can was charged yep. in the Urschel kidnapping? Yep. He's the then police chief who went out to Oklahoma City without telling anyone and testified. Yes, and later got demoted. Yep, got demoted. Yep. And as a reminder, uh, in that case, Can was the only person who was charged and who was acquitted. Can's lawyers tried to get him released on bail, but it was denied. The assistant county general, his name is Fred Pike, said, quote, if bail is granted, Influences will handicap the investigation, development of facts, and discovery of witnesses, which I read that as if you let him out, he's going to taint everything. Right. He's going to go around and bribe people or whatnot. Um, I want to note that at neither the assistant district attorney general nor the county attorney wanted to take this case. They were forced to. And assistant AG Pike was 71 years old and had no experience in criminal law when he was given this job. 
Okay. Uh, there was nothing. <laughs> I know. Good choice. Good choice, State. Uh, there was nothing in the papers between December 21st and the 29th. It was Christmas. I don't know. Then on the 29th, the New York Times article said, the events, this is a quote, um, the events of the past two weeks have been disappointing. There apparently is going to be no housekeeping. Not only has no one come forward to press these matters and insist on action, it's even reported that in a quiet way, the gambling places are reopening and the slot machines are cautiously coming back into place. Jury selection started on January 20th, was completed by January 28th, and the trial started January 29th. So this might be my favorite part of the trial, and it's not even actually part of the trial. Do you remember uh, Annette Fawcett? She's the woman that called Walter Liggett to the Radisson Hotel and then Can showed up, then they had words, they had drinks, and then they went yes. off. That was the night yep. he got beat. She um she was she was the divorced woman that that called him there. Well, the state wanted her and her secretary, who was also there that night, Felix Doran, to be witnesses, but they said they were unable to locate them. So the papers reported them as missing. She got wind of it. She was in Chicago. She got wind of it and sent a wire to them saying she's available and to please stop telling people that she ran out. <laughs> one paper, <laughs> one paper says she was expected to testify concerning conversations Leggett had with several persons shortly before his death. So I don't know exactly what that would be. If I don't know when she went to Chicago, but anyway. So then a few days later, Felix, her secretary, also let them know that he did not run out. He's willing to testify. His family said no one even ever contacted them about him. And this is his quote. The implications contained in the news dispatches are neither flattering nor helpful to me. I terminated services with Mrs. Fawcett in November. I left Minneapolis without the aid of false whiskers a day or two before January 1st. And my whereabouts here have been about as secret as the location of the Empire State Building. <laughs> they had some great quotes back in the day. Huh? <laughs> I, know. I know. And who knows if these people really said it or, or if the newspaper, newspaper people just yeah. made it up. Because like I think I told you in my experience when we were in Scotland getting married, um, they just made shit up. About your wedding. They just, right? And it was... Yeah. About stuff that, well, I mean, they got the details of the wedding mostly right, but like they wanted a quote from me and I said, it was wonderful. We had a great time and they turned it into, it was a dream come true. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's, it's, it, it's yeah, bullshit. You can't believe anything. Anyway. Fake news. <laughs> yeah. Fake news. Uh, Felix is my new favorite. I just picture him and I don't know anything about him, but just by that quote. He seems very dramatic. And I just picture him as a very fabulous gay man. Maybe he's not. I don't know. I'm going to I'm going to keep that in my head, though, because I like it. Unleash the power of stories anywhere, anytime with Audible. Immerse yourself in gripping stories, insightful knowledge and captivating characters anytime, anywhere. Audible is your library on the go. With hundreds of thousands of titles across every genre, there's a world of reading waiting for your ears. Listen while you cook, clean, or commute. 
free your eyes to conquer your day, all while feeding your mind. Start your 30-day free trial today and discover the joy of listening. Go to audibletrial.com slash TAC. That stands for The Activity Continues. With your free 30-day trial, you get one credit, two credits if you're a Prime member, good for any premium selection titles you like, yours to keep. You get the Audible Plus catalog of podcasts, audiobooks, guided wellness, and Audible originals. Listen all you want. No credits needed. Again, that is audibletrial.com slash TAC. If you're a regular listener, you know we love our three spirit drinks. They are the non-alcoholic spirit drinks that are taking the world by storm. Three Spirit is a range of three distinct drinks, each with its own unique flavor and effect. The Livener is a refreshing and invigorating drink that is perfect for starting your day or night. The Social Elixir is a smooth and sophisticated drink that's perfect for sharing with friends. And the Nightcap is a calming and relaxing drink that's perfect for winding down before bed. All three drinks are made with plant-based ingredients and are free from alcohol, gluten, and sugar. They are also vegan and ethically sourced. So whether you're looking for a delicious and refreshing drink to enjoy on its own or a sophisticated non-alcoholic alternative to cocktails, Three Spirit is the perfect choice for you. Try Three Spirit today and discover the difference. Visit us.3spiritdrinks.com and use the promo code The Activity Continues for 15% off your entire order. Cheers! That one that was, was the best cheer. one yet. Okay, we're going to end this episode here. I think this is a good place to stop. And um, there's a lot of good stuff coming. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Volstedland. Tune in next time when we continue on with the trial and hear about the witness testimonies. We'll also fill you in on a grand jury investigation that was going on at the same time as this trial. You'll find out if Kid Can really had to pay for his life of crime or if he got lucky again. Yes, I know you can Google it. And discover some really interesting things about the aftermath of the trial and how it was handled. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode and visit us on all our social media platforms for extra content. Also, if you're a fan, please consider supporting us by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Even if you don't listen on Apple, for reasons unknown to me, it really helps us out. Don't forget to follow on Patreon. You can follow for free or subscribe with a small feed to get even more content, including early releases. Volstedland is produced by me, Amy, at Whimsical Productions and is part of the Collected Sounds Network. Thanks for listening. Okie doke.